Uh, to start out, grab your Bibles and turn to John chapter 20. John 20. But we are going to be looking at John 1 to 11. Okay? So, so what you have is what is introduced in the first 11 chapters is made clear at the end of the book. So John uh, chapter 20. Uh, we really just want to read, I believe it's just two verses. Um, and so we'll be doing a little bit of flipping today. Um, and, and that's okay. John chapter 20. And if you'll stand with me, uh, just a short passage. This morning was long, what we read. This evening will be short. He writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we always gather, may we bring glory to Your name, make much of Jesus, and be transformed. So open our entire being, um, that we may conform to the image of Your Son. And may I decrease so that You can increase. In the name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. I'm sure most of us have maybe grew up in a rural area or have traveled to a rural area of Kentucky or moved to a, a new area of Kentucky that is rural and uh, we, we don't really know exactly where it is that, that we are. And uh, one of the things you'll find is that if you are lost in a rural area, perhaps the last people we need to talk to are the locals, right? The people who grew up in the area. Have you ever gotten directions from, from these people? Well, what you need to do is... Oh, go about two miles as a, as a crow flies, right? Going to go southwest, right? Don't go too far now. Uh, you need a, uh, we had this experience Friday. Guy says, you're going to go, you're gonna go just, just right through, right? You're going to cross two railroad tracks. Second one's going to be the worst. Just take it slow, right? You're going to veer right, right? And this is the sort of directions you're going to get. Because what you'll find is if you grew up in a town, you at best know the road names, and you know all the little towns and the uh, titles of places in between towns. What you don't know are road numbers, which is what people who are traveling through know really well. Like whenever we moved to Breckenridge County, I meant to put these names up here um, so, so we can see if you can guess what the names are. Um, but we lived near a town, and the church lived near a town called McQuady. McQuady. Okay, I don't know who Mr. McQuady was, but he had a town named after him. And when we came, uh, I had made a comment like, yeah, I was over at the general store in McQuaddy. They didn't hear a word I had to say after that, right? I got it wrong. It's not McQuaddy, it's McQuaddy. Uh, likewise, we, when we first came down to Breckenridge County, we passed through a town I thought was called Harned. H-A-R-N-E-D, past tense, right? You see E-D at the end of the words, past tense. That's the way my English teachers taught me in rural Kentucky. No, it's Harned. It's just two syllables in there. My favorite was a little town, uh, I, I remember because I'm a soccer fan, and there's a team, one of the biggest teams in the world out of Spain called Real Madrid. It looks like Real uh, Madrid. Uh, but Real, Real Madrid is, is, is how you pronounce it. So there's this town, one of my deacons lived in the town of, of Madrid. And he goes, Madrid? Where is Madrid? Like, you live in Madrid. What are you talking about, where is Madrid? There's a sign. It's a green sign that says, Welcome to Madrid. He goes, This here is Madrid. Madrid. Like, like, okay, all right, Madrid. I better start calling Madrid, you know? And, and that's typical of, of, of small towns. Uh, we, we, uh, uh, we live, uh, mom and dad uh, live near a town called Gratz. 
Gratz. Now, uh, I don't know how many times growing up, this is all before GPS and Google and all that sort of stuff, mom and dad, you know, if they had to order something, you know, and, and the person on the other end of, of the line would ask for an address, and they would you know, give the number and say, Gratz Road. And then uh, mom would say, Gratz, Gratz, G-R-A-T-Z. There's a Z at the end, not an S, Gratz. Gratz. Over and over. That was a 10-minute conversation about how to pronounce Gratz, right? Now, now with that said, can you imagine what, the, what it would be like to travel without road signs? Just, just imagine what that would be like. Signs direct us to where we are going. It tells us where we are, and it will show us how to get where it is that we need to go. They warn us when we're off track. They guide us in the right direction, and they encourage us when we are on the right path. After all, think about it. If you are, uh, mom and dad are on their way to Kansas now, and when they see a sign that says 8,000 miles until Wichita, that can be a bit, a bit you know, demoralizing. When it says 100 miles of Wichita, right? That's a little more encouraging, right? We're almost there, right? And you can finally answer your, your kid's question, are we there yet, right? 100 more miles and we'll, we'll be there. Well, the Old Testament uses this language uh, quite a bit. I want to give you just a few examples, some signs in the Old Testament. The first is the rainbow of, of the, the ark, right? So Genesis 9, this is the sign of the covenant I've made between you and me, right? The rainbow is a sign. So we are to naturally to see, whenever we see a rainbow, uh, preferably a natural one, um, we are to think of God's covenant with humanity. That there in Noah's ark, he saved one man and his family while the rest of the world came under the judgment. And with that rainbow, we should be reminded that the day came when his son arrived and one man was judged so that all of humanity might be saved. That was a sign of God's covenant. Circumcision is a sign in Genesis 17. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Again, whenever they would go through this surgical procedure with eight-day-old boys, this was a reminder of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, there, Moses was given a sign. Remember, at the burning bush, I will go with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. So when Moses arrives at Mount Sinai, he goes, oh, I remember this place. God really has kept his promises. Not only that, but God gives Moses and his brother Aaron a number of signs to prove their authority to the Pharaoh. You may remember one of them has to do uh, with the snake, right? The staff turns into the snake and so on and so forth. And God promised that he would give them a sign. The ten plagues are signs. Now, the prophets would often uh, similarly demonstrate their prophecies in erratic and even strange ways. Isaiah, for example, walked around naked and barefoot as a sign of judgment upon Israel. Ezekiel, well, he was the most eccentric. You can read it for yourself. But when we come to the New Testament, there is one book of signs, and it is the Gospel of John, chapter 1 through 11. Um, scholars all agree that you can divide the book of John. One of the ways you can divide it is into two halves, John 1 to 11 and John 12 to 20. A one, And so what we see here, what we look at today, and Lord willing, next week we'll look at the second part, uh, is the book of signs. Part two is known as the book of glory. It's called the book of signs because six of the seven major signs are found right here. I'll, I'll put them up here in, in a minute. 
Uh, there are seven signs, there are seven I am statements, and there are seven major teaching sections. Maybe the number seven is important to a Jewish writer. I don't know. I'll let you read the Bible and figure it out. One of the interesting things I didn't know before this week is that the seven signs are designed in a chiastic format. So what you can see in chiasm, we've talked about chiasm before, whenever I nerd out, is the first and the last are connected, the second and the second and the last, so on and so forth. And the reason this motif is used, this, this, this style of writing, is whatever is in the middle is the central theme of that passage, right? And so you can do chiasm with individual stories. We've seen that throughout Genesis. It's used all the time. You can do it throughout entire books. Here you can do it in the first half of a book, John 1 to 11. So let me show you how, how this works and, and how this is chiastic. Just by looking at it there, you may not see how it works. But notice this, first of all, uh, the turning water into wine, chapter 2, and the resurrection, chapter 20. Notice two things happen here. It is primarily, they are primary stories of transformation. Water to wine, death to life. And both happens on the third day. Clearly, John wants us to see the connection. Both the official son and the raising of Lazarus are both stories of death to life. Now, the official son wasn't uh, dead yet, but he was on the verge of it was very sick and his life was in danger. So one is the risk of death. The other is uh, a miracle after a prolonged death, right? Four days. Either way, you have a Jesus arrest life from death. You see in chapter 5 and chapter 9, uh, they're already highlighted there. The paralyzed man is, is healed at a pool, whereas the blind man in chapter 9, he too is healed by a pool. Uh, and we are to see those parallels. And what sits there in chapter 6, all by its lonesome, are actually two miracles in one. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He dismisses the crowd. He, he, then he walks on water. Remember, they, they think Jesus is a ghost. He then arrives on the other side. So what we have in the leading up to Jesus' teaching section is, are really two miracles. But the one, one that is identified as a sign is the feeding of the 5,000. So then what do we get from these signs? Obviously, we can't look at these in any great detail. But let's see what we can come up with um, Today, the first is Jesus is new creation. Here we see the first and second signs that, that is turning water into wine and the healing of the official son. Um, one of the things we get in the Bible, you've heard me say this because I think this is the point of the Bible. It is for us to see that God in Christ is both creator and redeemer. I think if you can grasp that idea, you can understand every word of the Bible. God is our creator who becomes our redeemer, which means redemption is new creation. This is so important for you to see this in the Bible. So often we see salvation as changing jerseys. I was on team A, now I'm on team Jesus. Right? No, 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 that is not how it's depicted in the Bible. Um, rather, salvation is a creative act of God by which he, he, he transforms the very soul of a man from death to life. So you can already see where these themes pop up in these first two signs. By the way, this is, this is what we get in the Bible itself, even beyond the narratives. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is dead. Behold, the new has come to life. Isn't this what baptism is really all about? We, we, we stand a person in front of the congregation and say, this is the person you knew, and soon you will meet someone new. Here is the dead, washed and buried as Christ was, and now anew. This is our new brother or sister in Christ, a new creature, right? And our testimony is, uh, is, is that I am not who I once was, for Christ has saved me. Paul in Ephesians 4, that is not the way you learn Christ. Put off your old self. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice the language of creations right there. So then when we come to the miracles, we are not encountering stories of Jesus as a humanitarian who just wants to help poor people and save the planet. Now, Jesus, through his miracles, is doing humanitarian good stuff. And I believe in doing humanitarian good stuff. That's not the point of them. These are signs in John's gospel that point us to who Jesus is. And by coming to these signs, we are put on the right path. Well, let me show you this in narrative, and then we'll look, look at it. So way the first four chapters work, or really chapters two to four, chapter one's more introduction, is chapter two is a miracle, water and wine. Chapter four is the healing official son. In between those two, two miracles are two uh, encounters with Jesus. The first one is with Nicodemus, right? So turn back to John chapter 3, John 3, and you can see, see some of this language here. John 3, notice the language here, verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you are from God, right? Unless God is with him. Nicodemus knows the signs point to something about Jesus. He just doesn't know what they point to yet. Now, the reason for that is because we're told he is in darkness, literal darkness. But even though he's in darkness, spiritual darkness, physical darkness, he still comes to light. And that's going to be a theme we'll, we'll, we'll come to again here in a minute. And we've talked about that before. Jesus's answer is important. Verse three, you must be born again. Now, that is a... Something that cannot happen physically, it must happen spiritually, and that is an act of creation, right? Because new life through birth is creation, right? So we celebrate when mom and dad and, 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 and conceive and all that, but we also understand this is why whenever a baby is born, we will speak in terms of miracle. So we understand there is, there is something divine happening there that is truly mysterious, no matter how well you know biology, and you'll notice that, that the means by which one is born again is found in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, what is the means by which one is born again? You look to the cross. That's the point of the serpent, uh, Moses and the bronze serpent story. Well, the next story is the woman at the well. So we have two encounters here, Nicodemus and the woman. And in the one way, these are two completely opposite stories. One regards a male, the other a female. One is rich, the other poor. One Jewish, the other Samaritan. One is at least outwardly righteous. The other is very clearly considered outwardly a sinner. However, both are in the same state. Nicodemus is in the dark. Whereas the woman is very thirsty. And, but those are spiritual language there, not just physical ones. And these two metaphors illustrate the same spiritual state. 
So you can turn to chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, and Jesus gives her the same answer he essentially gives the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the well, will be thirsty again. Remember, this is Jacob's well. This is not just your garden variety well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And she says, sir, give me this water. This is an act of creation. Why? Because this water is not, cannot be found by digging a hole in the desert. It can only be found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, on either side of these two encounters are the first two signs. The first, and I can already tell we're going to have to move faster than I would like. The first is turning water into wine. Go back to chapter 2. I told you you're going to be doing some flipping, so you'll be harder to sleep this evening. Chapter 2, verse 4 Jesus said to his mother, woman, I don't recommend saying that in the 21st century, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Um, and his mother says, do as he, he, he says. Um, now, notice here that we are told this is his first sign that he performed in John's gospel. And here he speaks of an hour. Now, in, in John's gospel, the hour points to the crucifixion of Jesus. So he's saying my hour hasn't come. That is the time of my ultimate act of creation. However, he recognizes that through these signs, he is demonstrating the point of his greatest act of creation, his death and resurrection. So my hour hasn't come. Now, again, Jesus does not perform this miracle because he is out of ideas. He performs this miracle to point the reader, let alone those present, to his true identity. You need to know that these, these miracles get progressively more impressive. However, the first one really sets the stage for what it is that we are to see. Notice here that when he, he has the water filled all the way to the brim, he does it to prove that where, wherever the wine comes from, it did not come from uh, the, the, the jars themselves, right? So, so, so if, if, if you fill it all the way with water... No one can say there was already wine in it, right? Or nor can you say he put wine in it. No, it's full. The wine has to be created. He turns water into wine, right? He, it becomes wine. It becomes what it was not. This is creation. And the theme of creation runs throughout this gospel. Remember what we said a few weeks ago that Jesus is the Logos, the eternal creator redeemer. And this makes that very clear. Um, and so um, what we see then is um, Jesus does this act of creation and it is in the context of adding to and continuing festivities. The context is that of a wedding. If we had time, we could explore the weddings and other institutions here but 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 at a wedding this is supposed to be a time of rejoicing so it's interesting that the first miracle of jesus in john's writings is at a wedding the last act we read in john's writings of revelation takes place at a wedding that is the marriage supper of the lamb this is a scene of rejoicing no one goes to a wedding to be miserable you go to a wedding to rejoice and Jesus shows us here that by this act of creation, the party continues. In fact, it's better now 
because the best wine has come. Well, quickly, um, chapter 4, I just want to make this connection. Chapter 4, verse 46, just, just so you can see it to prove I'm not making this up. Jesus is back in Cana, right? It's where, where he did, did the first miracle. So uh, verse 46, so he came again into Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. At Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. What are we to see here? That sign set up this sign. So the two, we are, we are meant to see these two connected. And we can see how they are related. Just as he turns water into wine, he rescues life from death. It's the same story, essentially, when you think about it. But we are to gain the same application. With Jesus comes new creation. Only in Jesus comes new creation. This is why we as Christians have to rethink the, ro- the, 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 the emphasis we place on fixing society, changing the culture, uh, of, of renewing marriage and all this sort of stuff. There can be nothing new apart from the finished work of Christ. No legislation or, or self-help book will accomplish this. Well, quickly, uh, not only is he new creation, he is new covenant. These two are alliterated. The third point isn't alliterated. I didn't have time to try that hard, so forgive me. But the first two start with C's. Jesus is new covenant. Now, what you get here, starting in chapter 5, going all the way through, uh, I believe, uh, through uh, chapter 9, is... Um, a real change in the narrative in a number of ways. One of them is the first four chapters, everybody loves Jesus. Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and others, right? He gathers his disciples. He's at the wedding. Uh, the official sons, they all like him, right? So, so everybody likes Jesus. Starting in chapter 5, seemingly no one likes Jesus. Um, however, one thing is fascinating is these three miracles here in this middle section we're looking at all take place at some sort of holiday, the healing of the paralytic by the pool took place on the Sabbath. The feeding the 5,000 is uh, representative of Passover. And the healing of the blind man took place during Hanukkah. Of course, Hanukkah takes you back to the time of the Maccabees between the two, two Testaments. Now, the reoccurring theme we see throughout these is darkness. Now, we've already been introduced to this because it runs throughout John's Gospel, but particularly in this middle section. Darkness both physically and spiritually. For example, in chapter 5, when we come into chapter 5, this theme shows up. Um, Jesus heals a man near a pool. Now, everyone can see, after Jesus heals the man, that he is now able to walk. But the Pharisees are blinded by their loyalty to the law. They, they, can, they cannot see grace. So look at chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? You see how blind they are? Now, this is something we, we went through the story uh, earlier this year. Um, it's fascinating that the pool here is crowded with a lot of people with, with uh, handicaps and whatnot. Yet Jesus chooses this one. It's almost as if this man is the only one that can see Jesus which will show up in chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man. And so when he comes and he says, well, this guy came and he told me to pick up my mat and walk, the Pharisees are described as one who does not know who would have done that. They are blind to, to that reality. Well, then, then that comes into chapter 6. We don't have time to go deeper than that. 
Um, chapter 6 is, again, the, the heart of the book of signs, right? And I, I wish we had more time for, for this story. Um, the feeding of the 5,000 mirrors the woman at the whale, those two narratives. Think about it. That in, in the woman at the whale, he claims to, if you come to me, you'll never thirst again. Feeding the 5,000, he, he claims, if you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. One is a miracle narrative, the other is an encounter narrative. But, but they, they essentially have the same conclusion. Jesus meets a physical need that points us to a spiritual truth. We hunger and thirst for many things, but we will never find satisfaction until we come to Christ. Ask the crowd, ask the Samaritan woman. Um, what's interesting is that Jesus feeds their bellies, yet they refuse to acknowledge who he is. And the disciples in the story are at risk of doing the same thing. So when you come into chapter 6, first 14 verses, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? And that's 5,000 plus women and children, okay? And so here you have this massive multitude, and, and they want to make Jesus king, and he, he didn't want to do any of that. So he sends them away with their bellies full, right? They are physically uh, uh, nourished. They are spiritually malnourished. And the temptation for the disciples is to buy that physical act as a spiritual truth. And Jesus wants them to see that what they are really hungering for is more than bread. They are hungering for a true and better bread. And so he sends them away, and he sends the disciples out onto a boat. So one by land, one by sea, Jesus goes up to a mountain to pray. And in the middle of the night, it gets dark, and the storm comes, and they think they're going to die. And Jesus comes walking. Now, it is, it is only, it's verses 16 to 21. It's just a very short, probably the shortest miracle narrative in John's gospel. It's very brief. You know it well. No need for us to, to go through it again. But we know what is so significant is, is at that moment, what the disciples need more than anything is to be saved. And is at that moment in complete and utter darkness, they see Jesus. Don't miss that. Do not miss that detail, because I've struggled with why the story is here for a long time, and it has finally clicked. It is dark, yet they see Jesus coming to them. They first think it's a ghost, because that's what we would all think. But then Jesus proclaims, I am. The divine one has come to you, and I've come to save you. And so when they get to the other end of the shore, no doubt still you know, trying to dry out their ties, and... Uh, the crowd is there, and they are still in darkness. They are still blind. They are still malnourished. And Jesus says, you must come to me, for I am a true and better bread of life. What Moses gave the people was temporary. It was needed daily. You come to me, you'll never be hungry again. Same message he told the woman at the well. But they want to be physically satisfied, not spiritually nourished. And there's this interesting exchange, chapter 6, go down to verse 60. Many of his disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, now you see we go from blindness to deafness. John plays with that all the time. Jesus said, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, they're clearly the Baptists in the room, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. Do you see the creation language there? The Spirit gives life. what he told Nicodemus. The flesh is no help at all, like filling your belly with bread. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Notice the physical and spiritual. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe, who would betray him to Judas, of course. Verse 65, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Act of creation. Verse 66, chapter 6, verse 66. So don't panic, dispensationalists. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see? You see what's happening here? Jesus before sent them away and they came back. Now they are leaving on their own accord. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? What a sad, sad end of the story, isn't it? You would think that, that if Jesus, if he just fed a multitude, man, people flock around the world to come hear what he has to say and would listen to what it is he had to say. Now, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas. You see the significance of walking on water now? That event helps them to interpret the feeding of the 5,000. He is light, and they can see him out in the storm. Well, then it ends, this section ends with chapter 9, my favorite story in all the Gospels, which means I probably shouldn't say much about it or we will be here for a long time. I love this story in chapter 9 because the man is a smart aleck and um, his testimony is very simple. I don't know much, he says, but I know this. I was blind and now I see. The man does illustrate that Many think they have to see before they can believe, but this man shows that maybe you should believe and then you can see. Isn't that what C.S. Lewis told us? I believe in the sun. I, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but by it, I can see everything else. We've talked about this before. Light really has three primary purposes. It can illuminate like this blind man. His eyes are open and he can see where he is going without need of aid. Like a flashlight in dark places that you're trying to escape. Light illuminates. But light can also expose, much like the Pharisees here. Why do you keep asking me these questions, the blind man says? Are you one to become one of his disciples too? He exposes them as frauds. Don't you see how blind you are? If you are trying to hide something, the last place you want it to be is exposed to light. You want it in as dark of a place as you can find, as far away from light as possible. Thirdly, it can blind Light can blind. If, if your eyes were adjusting to the dark and someone were to shine a flashlight in your eyes, you will go temporarily blind, right? You become, uh, was it, is it Tim Allen in, in Home Improvement? Does, after someone took a picture, he starts doing this. Or, you, know, this you know, I do that now just as a joke, right? And it, because, because light can blind. And a good, a good example of that is the, is the 5,000, right? The crowd. They've come to the light. They've been blinded by the light. Look at John chapter 9, verses 35 to 41, just for my own entertainment. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe him? You see how belief preceded sight? He's never seen Jesus, but he believes in him, for he opened his eyes. So he saw him spiritually, for he saw him physically. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Notice, you have seen him. No, he hasn't. 
That's why he sends the man out to wash. So they, in his blindness, he didn't see Jesus. But in his, but in his spiritual sight, he saw him clearly. And it's, it's, it's proven because, as we just sang, he trusted and obeyed him. You have seen him. And he is the one who is speaking to you now. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What did the Pharisees near him say? Are we also blind? He said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, guilt remains. And what does he do in chapter 10? Uh, He said at the beginning of chapter 9, he'll say it again in chapter 10, I am the light of the world. The light of the world. Well, man, so much good stuff there. Let's move on. Jesus is new life. Jesus is new life. Here we come to chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. This is, so if you want to be, Particular, there are seven miracles in the first 11 chapters. But as we've seen, two of those are connected, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. It's one narrative, essentially. Because once he feeds, he then walks on water. And we, we are, I think we have to see those together. So in one sense, there are seven miracles in the first 11 chapters. But his book of signs, that is the story of signs, the, there's six in the first 11, and the seventh one is the resurrection. However, it is this one, uh, more than all the others, which prepares the reader for the climactic act of resurrection. Because just as he turned water into wine, so he will raise uh, the dead to life. And not only will he raise someone else from the dead, the greater act is he will raise himself from the dead. Lazarus dies of natural causes. Jesus dies as a result of human sin. And sin did not win in the end. And so, so the new life theme, uh, if we saw Jesus as light in, in the previous, here we would see Jesus is, is life. Um, and for one, the obvious is, is that uh, he raises Lazarus. So verses 25 to 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection of life, right? I trust we, we know it well. And he becomes the resurrection of life by dying himself and conquering it. He gives the hope of, of eternal life to, um, to the sisters. Uh, but notice also, Lazarus lives, whereas Jesus will now die. And no one will, will rescue him from death until he picks his life up again. So, so we, we can't truly understand the raising of Lazarus without appreciating what it is that Jesus accomplishes at the end with his resurrection, which is why we read chapter 20, these signs were written so that you may believe Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing him, you may have life. So, so the way, way the gospel works is, is you have this book of signs, seven miracles, six signs, if you will, and it culminates in the raising of Lazarus. But instead of people believing in Jesus, they seek to kill Jesus. Lazarus lives while Jesus' days are numbered. In fact, when you turn to chapter 12, Jesus has seven days to live. The triumphal entry starts in, in chapter 12. So half the book covers one week of Jesus' life. And that's on purpose. Within the week, we go from the age of signs to what will become the age of glory. And the glory of Christ is the seventh climatic sign of his own resurrection. And he's been hinting at this, that that when I ascend above, right? And he'll talk about it more, Lord willing, we'll see uh, next week. Well, let me just share this with you, and we can perhaps call it a day. Um, Life, particularly eternal life, is a major theme 
uh, in John's gospel. Uh, we've already looked at some of these, John 3, 15, 16, so that whoever believes will, will in him have eternal life. By the way, I think this, so if you have a red letter Bible, this may be heresy. Um, I think verse 15 are the words of Jesus. Verse 16 is the words of John. I could be wrong on that. Your red letter Bible will almost certainly disagree with me. For I think verse 16 is an interpretation of the narrative of Nicodemus. Because in verse 15, he says, he tells Nicodemus, you will have eternal life. And here comes John saying, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him uh, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What's interesting there is God has not given his son to the point of death yet. John is anticipating where this story is going. Or consider John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice the hope of life. In Jesus is life. Chapter 5, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Now that sounds like the story of Lazarus, doesn't it? But we're in chapter 5 when he says not, not, not chapter 11. Although with the uh, official son, the context there. Verse 24, same thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice there, it is a possession that is in the presence, has eternal life, not will have eternal life. In John's theology, eternal life does not begin at the point of death. It begins at the point of life, new life, new creation, new covenant. That's the good news, right? You are already living the heavenly life. You're not quite what it will be, but it ought to be better than what it was. The joy, the contentment, the peace, the love, we possess it all right here, right now. It doesn't matter how dark this world is, we've been given light. It doesn't matter how deadly this world is and chaotic this world is, we've been given life. John 6, for this is the will of my Father, this is the uh, feeding the 5,000 narrative, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. How can He do it? Well, He demonstrates it in raising Lazarus on the present day in anticipation of the future day. Lazarus still had to die. That's, that's got to be rough. You wonder how long Lazarus was hanging out, realizing, i got to do that again. Right? It's like planning a wedding, right? Your hope, I never have to do this again, right? Right? Husbands, don't answer that out loud. Uh, but you, your hope, I, 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 will, I will do anything to marry this girl, including help plan a wedding, right? That's how much you love her, right? You just hope you never have to do that again. Lazarus had to die again. That's, that's not very encouraging uh, at all. Later in chapter 6, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Consume me. You will be given life. Verses 47, or rather 53 to 54. So Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's interesting, isn't it? He's talking about uh, raising the dead while he is feeding the multitude. Because this is not about food. It is about resurrection. Verse 68, he'll say, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of life. And what do we see when he talks about being the good shepherd? I give eternal life to them, the sheep, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands. You see, he goes from healing the blind man to saying, talking about sheep of his fold. These are the book of signs. And so by the time we conclude this first half of John's gospel, the book of signs, we should have a better idea of who it is that Jesus is. 
He is the light of the world, He's bread of life, resurrection and life. And now we are ready for the book of glory. And what is so fascinating is it is a book of glory that on a surface looks like a book of failure. Yet it is in the supposed conquering of the sun that the sun proves just how glorious he really is. So man will do his worst. And Christ will conquer it all. But that shouldn't have been a surprise if you paid close attention to those first six signs. Let's go a little prayer. Father,